Hello friends, freaks, nerds, and geeks, all those of you unabashedly burning in the ephemeral flames of existence right alongside me. I'm your host, Jay Van Veen, and you're listening to Why Did You Make Me Read This, your weekly comic book podcast. You know, it happens less and less as I'm getting older, but throughout my life, every couple of cycles of the stars, I get quite obsessed with something. Comics, bands, movies, philosophies, some things have an inherent gravity that just pull me towards them and send me down the proverbial rabbit hole. A modest mind, tipped into a manic state and hyper-focused on an exclusive subject. It's just how I get sometimes. The book Catch-22, the band Hot Water Music, the movie Fight Club, the video game Chrono Trigger, the Campbellian theory of the monomyth, the practice of Vipassana meditation, these are all things that I've waded into the deep waters of at various points in my life. But it was in my mid-twenties that this monopolizing propensity of preoccupation innate to my personality turned its focus on a comic. Not the first time, mind you. It happened with the X-Men when I was a kid, but with all the trading cards and video games and commercialization around those characters in the 90s, that made more sense for a kid to become infatuated with it. No, this comic was something different. An elaborate story that followed a long history and contained a massive cast of characters. A story that presented itself as one thing and morphed into something completely different along the way eventually just dropping its preliminary concept and embracing a much more historic and complex plot as it advanced. It's a comic that I would read and reread and reread and make my friends read, and any girl I was dating read, I would talk about it incessantly. I even had a little notebook next to my bed. You see, I almost always read comic books in bed, and I would jot down notes about characters and the plot, who had what code name, what family was working with or against the main characters, who was connected and how so. 100 issues of a story that sidewinds around a linear path, jumping from one story to the next, meandering about, returning occasionally to the initially presented concept before phasing it out completely and letting you in on the more intricate substrate of the story that's been building underneath the whole time. Thirteen collected editions contain Riso and Azarello's crime opus. And the volume I'm covering today, well, it has almost nothing to do with either the inceptive concept of the story nor the unraveling overarching plot that manifests. Hell, it doesn't even contain a single appearance from my favorite character in the series. So, why am I covering it? I don't know. I don't have anything revelatory to say. This comic is just fucking dope. Samurai, written by Brian Nazarello, illustrated by Eduardo Riso, colored by Patricia Mulvihill, lettered by Clem Robbins, with fucking awesome series-long covers by Dave Johnson. There's a lot to be said about the comic book 100 Bullets, or 100 Bullets as I usually call it. It's a violent neo-noir epic that ties in early American history to the conspiracy of 13 families that actually run the country and the internal police force they use to keep the balance weighed amongst them. This private policing force contains the true main characters of the saga. The leader, a man named Agent Graves, is this Machiavellian type. 
He's an old man with a grudge and an agenda who is able to manipulate and pull the strings of some of the most dangerous men in the world. These men, his crew of killers, are collectively referred to as the Minutemen, and they are some of my favorite comic book characters of all time. There's Wiley Times, the deadshot de facto leader with long red hair and a weakness for romance. There's Lano, a brutal brute of a man with a sadistic streak a mile wide. There's Milo Garrett, a badass with a bad attitude and a penchant for talking like someone straight out of a Raymond Chandler novel. Cole Burns, my favorite character in the whole series, a smooth operator with good looks and a deadly touch that never seems to lose his cool. Victor Ray, the elder statesman of the group that thinks things through a little bit more than the rest, but is as dangerous or more than any of them. Remy Rome, the young gun wild card wise-ass. And Jack Daw, the powerhouse of the crew, a massive man with some bad habits that are as strong as he is physically. And all these dudes have fucking sweet nicknames. The dog, the wolf, the saint, the bastard, the rain. This is the kind of shit I took notes on when I was reading the book way back when. The players, their names, their connections. And then there's the 13 families. They call themselves collectively the Trust. They have shifting alliances and vendettas with each other, each family maintaining a vast fortune and almost unlimited power. The Minutemen, they're watchdogs. If any of the 13 families makes an unsanctioned move against another one, the Minutemen sweep in to settle the debt, typically by blood. Agent Graves, he ran the Minutemen as a completely separate entity from the Trust, only employing them to settle scores, but always with an eye towards accruing more power for himself. And then there's the Warlord, a man named Mr. Shepard. He's the liaison between the Trust and the Minutemen. He works behind the scenes to make sure that all is as it should be in both camps. A facilitator, a diplomat, a dangerous motherfucker. That's the 10,000-foot bird's-eye view of the central plot that plays its way out to a Shakespearean end, and it is a far cry from the way this comic is introduced. In the first half of the series, we follow Agent Graves as he gives an attaché, a fancy word for a briefcase, to people who have been wronged. And in this attaché, there is irrefutable proof that the person he has given it to has been dealt an unjust hand, as well as evidence of the person that dealt that hand. More pertinent to the title of the book, inside the attaché, there is also a handgun and 100 rounds of untraceable ammunition. If the person on the receiving end wishes to do as such, they may take the gun and murder their transgressor with complete impunity from any law enforcement agency. As the book opens up, we see Graves traveling America and presenting people with the opportunity for consequence-free revenge. Some of the characters he is offering this to become major players in the series as it moves along, and some of the other ones who get the attaché are never seen nor heard from again. As the comic progresses, this angle is moved away from as the aforementioned interweaving crime plot is brought more into focus. Eventually, 100 Bullets moves completely away from the 100 bullets in the briefcase and focuses exclusively on the Minutemen and the trust and the battle brewing between the two parties. I can't say it's for certain, but I do seem to remember reading an article about this comic where in which they said that Azzarello had originally pitched the idea of the complex American history crime drama and his pitch had been rejected by Vertigo Comics. And he came back with the angle of the briefcase full of bullets which was considerably more straightforward and easy enough for Vertigo to stomach. 
They greenlit the project, and Azarello was able to create a following for the comic, and then slowly started to incorporate elements of the story he originally wanted to tell, long enough that he was able to flip the script and manifest the comic he had intended to create all along. And if that's true, then Azarello deserves credit for that long comic con. That is the kind of mind you want writing a crime story. And so, I told you all of that to essentially have you forget it. The story at hand steps away from the contrived attaché trope and even the bold entanglement of the villainy of the American rulers and their pet killers. Not completely from either one, but enough to be more character-focused in this collection. This trade paperback is called Samurai. You see, Azarello, he named all the trade paperbacks collected of this series in a kind of subtextual numerical sequence. Volume 1 is called First Shot, Last Call. Volume 4 is called A Four Gone Tomorrow. Volume 6 is Six Feet Under the Gun. And then it loses the scheme a little and gets a bit more convoluted down the line. 12 is called Dirty, like the Dirty Dozen. And then the final volume is Wilt, which I'm told is for Wilt Chamberlain's jersey number 13. But today, today we're covering volume 7. And what's the name of the trade? Do you remember? I just fucking said it. Samurai. Still don't get it? Let me give you a small hint. It's named for Akira Kurosawa's 1954 cinematic masterpiece, Seven Samurai. Get it? Samurai is broken down into two chapters. One follows a young man who Graves recently gave the attaché to as he's sent to prison for murder, an event that was masterminded by Graves himself. The second story follows a Minuteman, reluctant to re-enter the fold and his wild, drugged-out excursion into some unlikely foul play. Both stories are great. Both deviate, as I've made mention, heavily from the momentum of the ongoing plot without leaving it behind altogether. It's a meandering volume that still contains enough bit to keep us chomping at the mainline tale, but also shows us that the world these characters exist in is bigger than just what's been happening to them, and equally as corrupt and violent. Let's dive in. Sorry, sometimes I don't have an appropriate segue, and you just get a bullshit line like, let's dive in, thrown at you. Maybe I should come up with something a little bit more interesting and distinct for a transition. Uh, how about... Let's take a gander at what I've got over yonder. No, no, that's way worse. Come catch a glimpse at the fantasy I have stored in this shrouded pocket of my universe. No, that sounds like I'm going to end up in jail. Um, I have unfolded the map handed to me by a mysterious stranger, and across it read the words, This way there be comics. Am I sufficiently nerdy enough yet? Let's just move on. So, the first story in Samurai follows a convict by the name of Loop. Hughes. And man, I could really easily get into the weeds of all these characters and their backstories, but it would just eat up so much time. And honestly, if you find any of this shit interesting at all, you should just go ahead and read the comic. It's really 100 issues of righteousness. Anyway, Loop is in prison for murder. And on the onset of the story, he is in deep shit. I mean, deeper shit than being a convicted murderer. He's hospitalized the big bad of this penological establishment in an attempt to save face and not be seen as a punk in the eyes of the other inmates. The only problem is, this ultimate badass King Kong gangster is getting out of the infirmary soon, and so Loop, who is functioning as the protagonist of this tale, has a countdown clock on his hide. And it's interesting seeing Loop again after so long. We really haven't seen him since Volume 3, and he looks a little different here. 
He's more muscular, his hair is longer, he looks like a harder version of the man we knew previously, and that's understandable given where he's been since we last saw him. But as tough as Loop has gotten, he ain't tough enough to take on Nine Train, the gangster whose trachea Loop crushed in an altercation over a stolen piece of food from a lunch tray. And this story is interesting, and I'll admit, prison stories are inherently interesting to me. And I know maybe that sounds a little fucked up. Like the miserable environment surrounding people who have often themselves been the victim of an unjust judicial system shouldn't be seen as fertile ground for intrigue or spectatorship. I guess I'm always just interested what develops in people when they're subjugated to rarefied circumstances. The more brutal the setting, the more compelling the development. Tribalism, black market economies, extrajudicial justice, a self-contained ecosystem of misery and hardship, it terrifies me. That's probably another reason why I'm so interested by it. Loop, he navigates prison politics like a pro. He helps tutor another convict, getting him ready for his GED test, and it's kind of an odd match between the two, because Loop is a young black man, and the man he's tutoring, Erie, is a massive white skinhead, covered in Nazi ink. And although Loop's cellmate doesn't understand why Loop wastes any time with this white boy, Loop ain't no fool. Because you never know when an unlikely ally will come into play in a place such as this. And as Loop sweats the reappearance of Nine Train and tools up for the encounter, the plot is thickened by the appearance of a Minuteman. Lano got himself locked up, and Loop is shitting bricks the size of a shit brick house as he sees the massive man entering the prison setting. And why? Well, this kind of falls under the category of takes too long to explain. So let's just say that Loop and Lano had met briefly on the outside years before, and it didn't go very well for Loop. Lano. Jesus, this man is one of the most disgusting and savage characters in this story. He tortures people, he kills without thought or remorse, he delights in the anguish of others, a big guy with a broad frame and a constant need of a shave and a bath, jagged teeth and dark eyes. You wouldn't just cross the street to avoid this guy, you'd just fucking turn around and walk in the other direction. Lano pretty quickly mixes it up with Erie's Peckerwood crew and makes short work of them in the showers. Loop, he tries to go unnoticed, but Lano lets him know that he remembers just who he is. So, understandably so, Loop is pure anxiety at this point. Nine Train is getting out soon and going to be gunning for him. Lano is here, functioning as as big of an unpredictable factor as you can ever get. Plus, there's Sergeant Dirtz, King of the COs, and he's been busting convicts' heads for no reason lately, and Loop has just landed on his shit list. There is a brief aside from this prison saga, as the warlord, Mr. Shepard, makes his way into the prison visiting room to see Lano, attempting to bring the effective wild man back into the fold. And it's an interesting interaction as the two diametric personalities pace around each other. There's a great line in there as they discuss another Minuteman, Milo Garrett in particular. Milo would fight the sky if he didn't like the shade of blue it was, Shepard says between drags from his ever-present cigarette. And I love that line. You know, I've been re-watching the first season of True Detective again recently, and this exact line of dialogue is spoken in that show. So I don't know if this is just a saying in general, or if Azarello was ripped off. Either way, both this comic and that show are absolutely brilliant. Also, I've employed this line in some real-world conversations, and it didn't sound nearly as cool as I thought it would. Because I am not as cool as I think I am. 
Actually, I don't think I'm cool at all. I think I'm a pretty big fucking dork. The kind of dork that furtively inserts dialogue he reads in comic books into real-life conversations. That's why nobody should take me seriously. This story ends with Loop working things out in a particular fashion to execute his plan of getting into the infirmary and killing Nine Train before the opposite happens. Eerie, that massive Nazi white boy, is in the infirmary as well from his fight with Lano, and he aids Loop in taking Train out. Guess those GED lessons paid off in the long run. But Loop, he's out of the frying pan and into the flamingly sadistic madman's fury as Lano sets his sights on the young man. And the story ends with a panel of the outside of the prison. A dead bird lies on a corrugated metal roof as rain pours down from the stormy night sky. I never understood what this panel meant, what it was representing, a metaphor, foreshadowing, something about caged birds finding death and their methods to find freedom. I just pulled that out of my ass. I have no idea. The second story contains another Minuteman, who's miles and miles away from our dudes in prison. Jack Daw, the monster, Close to seven feet tall, chock full of massive muscles, dirty hair down to his shoulders, unkempt beard, ripped jeans and t-shirt, flannel long-sleeved wrapped around his waist, looking more like a Seattle grunge punk rocker than the ultimate badass private assassin he actually is. And why is that? Because Jack likes heroin. A lot. He spends a lot of his time doing H with his dumb but good-natured buddy, Mikey. I should probably mention... The Minutemen are in a state of flux at this point in the comic. Again, without going too deep into things, the Trust tried to cancel the Minutemen's contract. Agent Graves sent all his soldiers into hiding and kind of put them into some sleeper agent state, only remembering who they are when they hear a certain word uttered out loud. Jack has been reactivated, so to speak, but is losing a battle to his demons and having a hard time trying to figure out which way to turn. On top of that, Graves gave him an attaché with evidence telling him that all the problems he's had in his life are the fault of his own. So, essentially, it was a symbolic hundred bullets, indicating he should kill himself if he wants justice for his shitty existence. Kinda dark, right? Darker yet, Jack has just been killing random people while in his drugged-out state, so you know, he's kind of just a straight-up psychopath. I mean, I like Jack Daw as a character, but I often forget he spent a good portion of this comic book pretty much functioning as a serial killer. Anyway, this story is a strange one and really has nothing to do at all with the main plot thread. Jack and Mikey end up at Mikey's uncle's bootleg backwoods zoo, where there's illegal tigers, a naked 19-year-old side piece, a corrupt cop, a few wise guys from Philly, and lots of heroin. We see that Jack's mental state isn't getting any better as he taunts a tiger in the cage and ends up getting slashed on his arm for his efforts, leaving him with a pretty badass scar for the rest of the series. And yes, this story is as weird as it sounds. And I kind of hate to use this word as an adjective to describe the story because of its inherent negative connotations, but I do have to say it's kind of a pointless story. I mean, it brings the momentum that's been building to a halt and just focuses on a character that really hasn't gotten a whole lot of panel time up until this point. But I don't mind. Like I said, I like Jack Daw, and I like Mikey, and I think this story is fun regardless of its purposelessness. The way Mikey talks is hilarious. He has a thick Boston accent that's phonetically lettered out in his word balloons. 
At one point, Jack loses his shit as the mafiosos are going to kill the tigers of this private zoo and some chicken shit wannabe safari BS, and he starts to attack people. And Mikey screams, Holy fucking mother Mary, Jack, you flip a wig? And (laughs) fucking Mikey, he has so many good lines in this comic. At another point, Mikey's uncle points his gun at Jack to stop his rampage, and Mikey begs his uncle not to shoot his friend. This here is a tranquilizer, the uncle says, trying to calm Mikey down. Ketamine. And then Mikey gets this massively goofy smile on his face and just says, You holding Kit Kat? The man has his priorities. They might not be the right ones, but he has them. The story ends with death. What do you expect from a comic called 100 Bullets? The cop, the Goombas, they all wind up as stiffs. It takes a few issues to play out, and Riso's artwork and Azzarello's dialogue really keep things worth reading. I talked a lot about the duo's talents in the Moonshine episode, same creative team, and I don't want to be redundant here. If you're interested in hearing more about the creators, I'd just say check that episode out. I really have nothing but positive things to say about the two. The comic book closes with Jack and Mikey on the beach. They took the last remaining tiger from the mayhem at the zoo and just decided to let it loose in the sand. You know, I never thought I'd be part of the craziest thing I ever saw, says Mikey. What if it eats somebody, like a jogger or something? A jogger? Jack responds. Who gives a shit, those assholes? Oh, he's running nowhere. That line makes me laugh, but also reminds me I probably shouldn't like this guy. Jack and Mikey part ways as Jack decides to head back to the trust Minutemen situation and own up to himself and what's been happening in his world. Mikey tells Jack he'll look him up once he kicks the heroin. Then, in one of my favorite panels... Jack just gives a real sad and knowing look. And with this massive murderous junkie walking away down the beach from his doomed friend with a blue sky overhead, seagulls populating the air, and a wild tiger on the loose, I don't know, this closing splash page always fills me with hope for some reason. Who knows why? Probably because I'm a weirdo. Man, there is just so much story in 100 Bullets. I could have done every episode I ever made of this podcast dedicated to that comic, and we'd still have miles to go. I was going to go on to describe it, keep throwing words like complex and interweaving and connectedness, but I figure I might just wear you out with that repetition. It's a well-thought-out story. It's so fucking interesting to me. No, I'm not obsessed with it like I was a decade ago, but I still read the whole thing through every year. And you know, initially, I thought it would make way more sense for me to cover an arc featuring my dude Cole Burns. But this volume, I'm not sure. It's one I've read more than any of the others. I'll just pull it out sometimes and read it even when I'm not going through the whole series. Maybe the fact that it deviates from the central thread so much allows it to work more like a standalone story. It's unusual. People in rough situations doing what they can to survive are doing things that don't really make much sense at all. Cole Burns is awesome, though. You better believe that. I don't like what Azzarello did with him in the end, but that's a whole nother story altogether. Wait, no it's not. It's actually still this story. It's actually the exact same story altogether. I suppose I just had to get that in there. Just an aging comic book fan over here yelling at the clouds. 100 Bullets. Proof of the magnitude of comic book awesomeness. A comic that meant a lot to me. A comic book I got lost in. Man. Is it good? God damn, is it good?
Why Did You Make Me Read This, was written, recorded, and edited by me, Jay Van Veen. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can just make a ritual sacrifice to whatever gods are in the pantheon that you believe in and just offer up whatever it is they want. Just remember to make demands of them for benefactions for your humble host here. I'd like to give a shout out to my buddy RJ Jones for the music here, A-R-J-A-Y Jones. Google his name and find his awesome music somewhere out in the ether of the internet. Take the time to take care of yourself, take the time to appreciate the things you have, and take the time to maybe help somebody else if you can. I'm trying to do that shit. I know it's not always easy. I hope you guys know how much I appreciate you being here with me. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.